Welcome to the 13th episode of Three Cartoon Avatars. I'm your host, Logan Bartlett, and I'm joined today by my esteemed co-hosts, Nikita Beer and Zach Kukoff. How are we doing today, guys? Doing well. Um, my sewer line was plugged uh, today, so I had a plumber come to unplug it. <laughs> That's exciting uh, stuff. <laughs> I, I've turned my house into a uh, uh, essentially like a hacker house where we're building products and engineers are sleeping over. So it was sort of a crisis, but uh, the crisis has been averted. And also I, my stock portfolio was destroyed today. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, I knew the stock thing going into this, but the plumber thing was like a fun in- adventure. We all just learned about together for the first time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. I'm glad you incorporated that. This is really the humanizing elements of Nikita beer that is sewer has been backed up all day. No, I, I, I really appreciate that that level of honesty. Um, so I guess kind of a quick uh, update before we dive into the regular scheduled programming. Um, so we've we've uh, collectively been sort of talking and we've had a really fun time doing this over the course of the last uh, the last 12, 13 episodes or whatever. And we've really enjoyed having a bunch of guests on and having other people either talk with us or interview uh, people. And so I think what we've kind of collectively decided is the format's going to evolve a little bit from from here. We're thinking through a little bit of an evolved format that is probably going to be more rotating guests that come on to co-host with us, as well as likely an interview once a week. This is sort of the first week we've we've tested this out. You'll hear the the Keith Raboy interview that I did in person uh, at Miami Tech Week here at the end. So I think you're going to hear the the type of format that we do just continue to evolve. We're going to continue to experiment from from here. So it's been a ton of fun and I think we want to keep doing it, but it's going to be a little bit of an evolved and different uh, format. And Nikita, I know you've had a bunch of time constraints as well. So maybe talk to people a little bit about what the last whatever three months has been for you and and where what you're up to from here. I've had a blast. I've gotten great feedback from like everyone that's listened. Uh, I mean, sh- sharing product knowledge, talking about these news stories. Um, I'm, I'm about to be launching a product in about a few weeks. So, uh, I, I'm going to be, uh, sort of the guest star, uh, going forward, but, uh, I'm, I'm still excited to be part of it, uh, and, and watch this thing bloom. What, what started as a joke, Nikita launching a, uh, an app and a product, what we thought was actually not true. Somehow it, we we've grown up so much over the course of the last three months. He's actually, he's actually building something. To, to be fair, the, when the market crashed, I was like, I think I need to sell another app to Facebook. that's good i think people listen we're gonna miss having nikita on every week but i think people are really going to enjoy we're gonna have a bunch of different faces but different voices on and even so far it's been a lot of fun to be able to bring on folks who are uh, even more involved in the weekly drama than we've been so i'm excited for the new format people are really gonna enjoy it yeah, I, I've gotten uh, some people that you've heard to agree to come on more regularly as well. So I know Packy McCormick's going to do it. Uh, Zach Weinberg, who was on last week, uh, who's actually blown up as a TikTok uh, star a little bit. He uh, TikTokers get really mad when you criticize Elon, which uh, and crypto, which which Weinberg did last week. And so we need to make sure he comes back for more of that type of content, getting canceled by nineteen year olds on on TikTok. I am happy that Zach is the other Zach Weinberg, the other. Jewish Zach on the show is happy is going to fall on his sword each week for the 19 year old mob. That's a, a pleasure to have him in class. The rage bait comments that he's gotten. We just couldn't resist that. That sweet, sweet virality. He's uncancelable. He is uncancelable. He is post cancellation. I think when you sell a company for two billion dollars, you're 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 in that position. Um, 
but yeah, no, Nikita, uh, we we really enjoyed it, and uh, you've obviously uh, had a ton of insight into all the the products. And so, one of the things we want to make sure is we continue to get the the founder and product centric. Um, kind of thinking and feedback. Obviously, Zach and I don't have that here. And so we'll continue to incorporate people like that. And if there's suggestions that, you know, people we think we can hear on, um, it, we don't always have to have, uh, you know, Jewish men in their late 20s, early 30s. So I think we'll diversify the ranks a little bit as well. So yeah, no, we're, we're, we're excited to continue to experiment. I don't think Zach Weinberg solves that problem, but I love that we're trying to one day. Yeah, Packy's Irish, so I guess that gets us some, some of the way there. <laughs> so, Logan, how has Miami Tech Week been? Yeah, so uh, I guess we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, and uh, it's so far, I think officially it kind of got going on on Wednesday. Last night was sort of the, the start of it. Um, I, uh, I sat down with, with Keith on Tuesday, and so, you know, was able to hang with the Founders Fund guys for a while. And then last night, uh, Insight had a party, um, then... Uh, Kraft had a party. Then Lux had a party. I went to uh, I went to Ramp. Uh, Ramp had like a party for customers and a handful of their employees, and so I did that. But uh, it's been fun. There's a lot of VCs down here. It's uh, there's not like one cohesive thing going on. It's sort of like I think uh, Miami Tech Week is a vibe more than it is a uh, anything specific to like where you go or what you do. It's a lot of investors hanging out. But I don't know. I think people are just excited to see other humans again, like interact in mass uh, with other humans. I think crypto's kind of ignored the pandemic, but it feels like this is a, the first real event for a lot of people. So it's been fun. I heard Vanilla Ice was at the craft party. Yes, yes. Uh, vanilla. I, I did not see that. I was gone at that uh, at that point, but I don't know how they landed on that. If it's if it's intentionally ironic, if it's if it's not, I, I have no idea. Pre-pandemic, he was at like, either Dreamforce or like some, he was like doing a bunch of tech stuff, making the rounds before COVID too. I feel like he's been a staple at uh, tech parties. I, I don't know if that's like really sad that he's doing this or like good on him, you know, at this point, I feel like this is kind of the business that Cameo has made happen just at a larger scale. Right. I don't know what happens though. I, I wasn't there. Like once he gets past Ice Ice Baby, like, does he just keep doing it? Does he just loop back the different like versions of Ice Ice Baby? Yeah. He does Ice Ice Baby, then he does Under Pressure, like all the samples yeah, exactly. thereafter. Ice Ice Baby, Techno Remix. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I think it's all that. I have no idea. I will say it's not sad for him. Like, power to him. You should get the bag. It's it's like sad that everyone in tech is so old that Vanilla Ice is like an exciting uh, person to have perform. Yeah, I think that's... I th I, well, it plays to the geriatric crowd that's in Florida uh, pretty well. So I think like this is this is hip and new. I saw a funny tweet at one point that was like, it's nice that the Super Bowl actually has uh, finally has like modern artists that we know. And then it's like the person slowly realizing that they're old. Right. That, yeah, exactly. That's kind of the way it's glad we finally have, you know, artists coming to our shows that are culturally relevant, like Vanilla Ice. Do you think that all these events are like this is like the final event of the bull market? Uh, like I, I felt like the like there, there's been an event like every two weeks in tech for the last six months. It feels like this is like markets tanking valuations are getting cut like it's it seems like the uh the kind of foolishness and uh crazy spending is uh is on the way out do you think venture firms are going to stop spending 500 grand on parties with uh with vanilla ice in attendance i don't, I don't know if i thought that was just a product of of venture capital and that was the best way to get deals <laughs> you have to understand nikita these people have like 
well, not maybe these people, but a lot of people in venture don't really have a social life outside of tech. So like the idea that their venture firm can subsidize their social lifestyle is actually quite appealing. Certainly not that any investor on this call, but to many other investors uh, in the world. Yeah. Thank you to all the VCs who have subsidized uh, the parties for the last 12 months. It's, uh, you know, it's the way of giving back. People say VCs don't add value, but here we are. We're, we're uh, yeah, providing alcohol, food, and uh, 90s hip-hop artists to, uh, to the community. So it's the least we can do. So one topic we want to hit this week was Netflix shares were down over 37% on Wednesday after the company reported its uh, first subscriber loss in more than 10 years. So Netflix announced Tuesday after the market closed that they had lost... 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter. And it's also forecasting a 2 million subscriber loss for the second quarter. So uh, just to put this in context, about 700,000 of the subscribers that were lost were due to uh, Russia and uh, their their suspension of, of ongoing support of content there. Uh, so it would have been an ad of about 500,000 if, if you take that out. But just for context, Netflix previously told shareholders it expected to add two and a half million net subscribers during the quarter. So 500,000 versus uh, two and a half million, if you kind of normalize this. Uh, during the same period a year ago, Netflix added four million uh, subscribers. So this is uh, a big, big deal. It obviously sent the stock tanking. Uh, you know, before COVID, uh, Netflix was trading at $36 a share. It's currently down around. 20, uh, sorry, $215 a share. Um, during the pandemic, over the course when it had the big run up, it actually got above 700. So it's kind of wild to see this business seems to be reeling a little bit um, from all the machinations in the market. And it's interesting to see them actually, the COVID darling that they were, they're actually in a worse uh, place than they were prior to the pandemic. So Nikita, maybe give us your uh, thoughts on Netflix as a product, where they are, what's gone wrong, where they go from here, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of not been that happy with the Netflix product for a couple of years now. Um, I attribute like their slowing growth and consumer interest in their product to something that I call product decay. And that emerges from classic growth hacking that we do, you know, at Silicon Valley companies do. Uh, Growth growth teams uh, at, at these companies tend to run the show and they're incentivized to boost metrics that can have these sort of insidious effects. I mean, let's take an example, like their ranking of content uh, is probably fixated like on overall watch time, um, but that content might be baity that actually performs well. Like there's two examples that I can find that I certainly don't want to watch, but I might click just to see what what it is. And that's that show about uh, like monsters dating sexy beasts, and then that silly reality like game show, The Floor Is Lava. And just to be clear, sexy beasts. Just to give a little bit of the plot line here, but they they uh, it's a dating show where each contestant dresses up in elaborate makeup uh, in, in favor of their favorite. Uh, beast, and then they go on dates and uh, go out in public together. So I don't know. I mean, to each their own. But I, I think sexy beast is a pretty riveting concept. Just to be clear, some people just call that dating and SF in general. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nikita, you were saying. So, like, um, I think uh, you know it, it'll certainly boost the top line numbers, but um, I think the 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 problem is that it doesn't actually leave consumers satisfied with the product. Um, 
And th- these sort of problems have plagued Facebook uh, over the years uh, as well. They, they prioritized uh, kind of baity content and newsfeed that certainly increased engagement, but it ended up crowding out posts from friends and family. And uh, that ultimately created this whole crisis where users actually just stopped posting, uh, particularly in like influential and higher income coastal areas. And uh, that led Facebook to create teams like MSI, which was Meaningful Social Interactions. And they had initiatives like Time Well Spent, which they try to get these like actual real posts from your friends back on the platform. And they're still digging themselves out of this uh, situation right now. Meaningful social interactions, by the way, or time well spent, sounds like, you know, they hired some consultant to go in that like hasn't interacted with humans ever before. But on the on the on the Netflix point, like, what do you do from a product and content perspective if you're Netflix? Like, how do you get out of this flywheel? I I think growth hacking is fine and it's and it's necessary at those early stages of a product's lifecycle. It's how you get the velocity going and definitely how you make money quarter over quarter. But um, ultimately, like consumer product development is just as much art as it is science. And if you take Snapchat, they've leaned almost entirely toward that art uh, side. And by by simply building cool things that they think would be interesting to their core audience, these like coastal teens. Um, and so they're facing the, exa- the exact opposite sort of problem. Um, but for Netflix, I, I think they need to actually return to focusing on that segment of users Uh, and just be intellectually honest around what the best experience for them would be. Um, Right right now, I think the the friction to find like a highly rated movie is insanely high. Like we all have, we've all experienced this sort of decision fatigue when we open the Netflix app. Uh, I like, I literally have to go to another app, which I I use this app, Just Watch, to filter out by Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb scores. Uh, And what happens when I do that? I find a competing streaming service and watch it elsewhere. So it becomes totally commoditized. Uh, so I'm not opening Netflix first when I want to discover content. So they, I think they need to actually make it a little more utilitarian uh, instead of just suggesting low quality stuff uh, so that discovery takes place on their product. Uh, right now, it's it's simply just a library. It was like the renaissance of for the media industry the last 10 years because Amazon and Netflix were paying you know huge amounts of money to have all this content produced. Any everyone I know that works in production uh, was totally booked, like every day, week working weekends, making a decent amount of money too. Uh, and they they just and the supply of these production uh, staffers was so limited that a lot of production moved to Atlanta, moved to Vancouver. Uh, so th- there might be some sort of bubble popping. Yeah, I think what's interesting. So I, in full disclosure, one of our partners, the founder of Redpoint, uh, Tim Haley, is uh, still on the board of Netflix. He made an investment, whatever, 22 some odd years ago. And so just give that as a disclosure. I actually don't you know, know anything or, or whatever. But uh, I will say what's interesting, Netflix has changed the tires while the car is in motion before. Right. And obviously they started as mailing DVDs and then they went to content. Then they went to or, or streaming uh, and then they made false starts. I think it was 2000 nine, maybe 2010 with uh, splitting those two businesses off and they were going to have their streaming business and their DVD business. And then they wound down the DVD business. And now then they went to syndicated or licensed content. And now they've leaned in on original content. There isn't a back catalog for them. Right. And part of this is originally the, the value prop for Netflix was there wasn't anything else like it. And a bunch of people enabled their success by giving them 
uh, access to back catalogs, right? And so it's interesting that uh, the theory was, hey, are they going to be able to change the change the tires while the car was moving and be able to build up this back catalog that had a big enough value prop that people would continue to subscribe? And also, they were kind of reaching the market saturation point where they started to increase prices as well, right? And so these two things have happened at once, along with increased competition just in general for net new content. So they're spending more on producing new stuff. They have credible new competitors, and they've lost their back catalog of stuff that, like, if you originally signed up for Friends or whatever it was, right, all this stuff is now on you know, a seemingly infinite number of apps. And so I wonder, it's going to take a while for them to catch up with, if ever, with the back catalog so that the value props there. Now, I do think it's a staple for certain types of people just to just to have it. And there is a, a reasonable amount of great content on there. But I don't really see how they get out of this this cycle that they're in right now. So long as HBO Max exists, so long as Disney Plus exists, so long as Hulu exists, so long as all those other things. And so I wonder if like, you know, for the everyone's always said Apple makes the most sense as an acquirer. I kind of wonder if like that is a potential outcome here. It feels like Netflix's content feels cheap these days. And I think their breasts yes. sort of been sort of been tarnished. Uh, and when they offered this catalog in like, you know, 2010, you, for 10 bucks, you got uh, un, like 2000 movies and they got it from the they I think they licensed it from the stars uh, movie channel catalog. Um, but the the market that they're fighting in today is so different from when they started uh, in to, like, to be fair, I think actually Netflix is a genuinely terrible business. They're playing in a market where uh, their average revenue per user is the same as like an ad-based video network like YouTube and TikTok, but they're paying extraordinary prices for that content. And uh, right now what they're doing is they're riding between uh, this like highbrow, high high-quality experience like HBO and TikTok content. Like... So they they don't actually have a clear differentiated product they're offering anymore, uh, and they're kind of in like no man's land. Is what I, they're creating hour long junk food when you can get the same dopamine hit from watching a fifteen second TikTok video or or YouTube, uh, which is free for ByteDance and Google. Um, so I I think the like as a product person when I look at Netflix like the funnel to get value is extraordinary. Like you have to literally sit at your TV. Pull up the app and then watch an hour of like some Flores Lava video. Uh, and and you could have just gotten that by opening your phone and watching TikTok. Now, I think that's a great point. And that, that's it's it's interesting, right? They've been at different points in time pretty arrogant about who their competitors are. Like in 2017, they said sleep is our competition. In 2019, they said Fortnite was our biggest competition, right? And so they've been pretty arrogant about who they're competing with. But you know, we saw Quibi fall down this uh, into this predicament of in the world of everyone's a creator, right? And and the near infinite amount of content that you can get that's interesting scrolling on your phone, and you don't need the the production value of high quality lighting or sound or whatever, all that stuff. Like you're willing to accept the video as is, right? Are they caught in this middle ground where HBO is a premium product that what they stand for is going to be, you know, high quality? And TikTok is the long tail of everything, and it allows the masses to come up with mo what's most interesting and most entertaining. So from a pure like 
time competition standpoint, I just think both of those are much stronger value props. I just don't know if it's that big of a business. Like this background noise where you unplug and uh, you kind of... uh, you're just sitting like a vegetable and watching like that's like a it's a it's an important part of our lives like that's what people do uh but i think you you get a lot of that from passively doing it on on tiktok and these other uh social networks so i i don't know if like a hour in front of your couch like uh is is really really merits the the price and all that for that sort of content and i wonder i mean to some extent right like we're talking about a company that was founded in 1997 that got included in the fang stock for whatever whoever came up with that gave them a very nice glow up to include them with everyone else in that right and so this could just be the maturation point of hey, they've done a great job. They've basically had two acts already, which is far more than any company. You know, most companies barely get one, let alone two. And now they're on their third act of like original content, which is, it's amazing, right? They went from the DVDs to to the, you know, the streaming app to their original content. It's amazing they've gotten this. But I just wonder, like, it's it's clear that that is a value prop. But I just wonder if we're at the saturation point of the people's willingness to pay for that. And you're seeing as they increase prices, you're not seeing the the stickiness that you once did, right? You're seeing churn because clearly there's alternatives to this passive lean back, you know, almost like pressing something for the radio station. There's a price sensitivity there that clearly as they increase, there's increased churn coming with it. I think that we should give them credit for like, pulling it off twice. But also keep in mind, this company was created during like the birth of the social internet, like at least the the streaming business was. And they totally missed the opportunity to make any of this a social experience that would drive stickiness. Like, uh, like if, if our if we knew our peers were watching stuff, we would have to like keep the subscription going. Uh, but right now, the, m- most of the discovery around like the the social part of Netflix happens on third party networks. And it's not very intentional. Uh, So I I think they had this chance, something that uh, HBO certainly couldn't do. Uh, Maybe Amazon could have done, but I I think Amazon Prime is just a a loss-leading business to keep you on Prime. Nikita, I I agree with your sharing experience uh, thing, right? Because we're all watching these things, the social experience. We're all watching these things in different times, right? And they they did this one big drop and you watch it yourself. But one of the great things about television in general was the shared experience, right? And right now, like the only things that we have shared experience around are like presidential debates. It's like sporting events. It's award shows. And we've lost this like, and then it was kind of Game of Thrones for a little while, but we've lost this like, connectivity of everyone on Twitter talking about the same thing at the same time or knowing what other people are watching. And Spotify Spotify has captured this from a music standpoint, right? Spotify clearly, if you look in the right hand of what they're what they're doing, it's more of a social experience that they've they've recognized. You're not you're not opening the app and seeing anything. I think this is like it's certainly happening, but the level that they could be executing, uh, they're they're far from that. Uh, I mean, the biggest thing they've done in app that actually even shows any kind of social proof is those uh, labels that they added in the last couple of months that say like uh, top top one in the yeah. U.S. currently like that is the furthest they've gotten. And they literally have your identity. They uh, at one point they had Facebook uh, sync. Uh, the, the execution was really poor when they streamed everything that you watch to Facebook. But uh, I, there has to be some version of it that. Uh, could make it actually ha- like could uh, the content could have social proof. 
Yeah, like, why can't I know that Nikita's on season two of Sexy Beasts already watching, like, the, you know, the second episode? Like, why can't I know that? Why can't we be friends? I mean, there's, they like, it's definitely a, a, a tricky thing to execute, but I think there's a way to navigate the privacy uh, implications and still uh, capture the stickiness of, like, your friends are all watching this. Don't cancel your subscription yet because you're going to be left out. I mean, I think it's just clear they've reached the maturation point for whatever their market is. And I don't, like, I'm not... It seems like Reed Hastings is a great, uh, a great leader and they, he's turned, you know, he's been able to continue to pivot this and evolve. So I don't mean to take anything away from them. It's just now a different business. It's not a growth stock in the tech world anymore. Like the, it's it's kind of a mature, becoming a mature media company. And that's that's fine. It's just valued very differently than what a high growth tech company is. Elon Musk uh, was in the news as he uh, seemingly always is, but uh, he, he laid out his plan for uh, his takeover of Twitter. In an SEC filing, he said it would be $25 billion in debt and another $21 billion in personal equity. Uh, the funding is going to be provided through two debt commitment letters from uh, from Morgan Stanley's senior funding, in which the bank commits to offer loans worth twenty five and a half billion. Um, notably, I guess Elon didn't list any equity partners in there along with him, but it, it, it came out that he is talking to Toma Bravo about uh, about a potential uh, pairing up here. So it, it's interesting. I mean, the, the story has been ongoing for the last, whatever, uh, 10 days at this point, two weeks. Uh, last week, right before, uh, right after we aired, uh, we talked a little bit about the poison pill with Dan Primack, and uh, they actually implemented that as well. And so there are there is some protection against uh, against a hostile takeover for Twitter's board. Uh, but interested in your guys take i didn't think it would actually get this far that he he would he would have funding set up and uh funding secured as he as he once uh, upon a time famously said nikita what are your thoughts here did you think we would end up at this point where do you think it goes from here i think elon's public persona almost pigeonhole pigeonholed him in this position where he has to now buy the company or else it's going to be such a big blow to his ego so I, I don't think he can back out from where he is, where he's standing now. He's, he's literally going to have to find some some private equity company, whether it's Tony Bravo or I think Apollo was the other one that uh, he's working with. I, I think he's going to have to find some way to buy it now. Um, and I, I think uh, there's no way he'll they'll be able to stop him. I mean, with even with a poison pill, he's now they're talking about the tender offer. Um, but the tender offer, they can still block it, right? The tender yeah. offer can still... Like there, there. It's sort of a game of chicken at this point. I, I think the the poison pill in place like can make it uh, impossible to acquire, but it would be a really bad look if if he, they ran a tender offer and the shareholders said, "Hey, we want to go with this," and then ultimately the board decided not to do it. Uh, Chamath on All In last week did a did a really uh, good job, kind of outlining the history of the poison pill. The one thing that they didn't talk about was the notable example of Yahoo. In Microsoft. So this happened in uh, in February 2008. Microsoft placed a bid uh, on Yahoo for $45 billion. Uh, they put in a, a uh, Jerry Yang, who was the CEO of Yahoo at the time, put in a poison pill to block from a takeover. Um, it, when ultimately they weren't able to agree on price, the stock dropped 25%. And ultimately, Yahoo was sold for uh, $4.5 billion to Verizon in 2017. So we went from a $45 billion offer to one-tenth of that 
uh, nine years later right here. And so that's the example, the counterexample that these guys are up against of, hey, this really can go south and the board could act in a very myopic way that doesn't prove to be very successful. And so I think, and by the way, about that, it was half stock, half equity, or sorry, half cash, half half uh, stock. And so if you look at that today, that was whatever, 22 billion of Microsoft stock. If you held that, that would be $220 billion worth. And obviously, who knows, like they, they wouldn't have actually held, but it's just insane. Like you can destroy a ton of value, right? In, in thinking you're acting in the best interest of the shareholders. Yeah, I mean, the one I think the thing that's interesting about this whole Elon situation still is he Elon never learned or, or doesn't care to learn, I think, to his credit, like the act of seeming serious, like he's very good at accomplishing things, clearly, like look at the track record he's created so far. And yet with the way he speaks purposefully, by the way, and the way that he interacts in the world, I think is doesn't signal to uh, the Wall Street establishment, to the media chattering class. That he's a serious contender for many of these things. And so I think what you're seeing is like this weird cognitive dissonance where people are watching him get more and more serious and closer and closer to be able to force the issue in a real way, but still feeling intuitively like they should be uh, objecting or they should be dismissing it because it's coming from a guy who likes to post 420 memes on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely doesn't talk like uh, your typical billionaire, I think. Well, in typical Elon fashion, I guess all this stuff, I mean, it was a holiday for him on 420. So it, it seems like, you know, I, I don't know if the timing of all this is just serendipitous, but he uh, he was. Yeah, it, it seems like this is going to continue to go on. I don't think we've heard the end of this for the next weeks, months. I have a feeling that we're going to be talking about this for a long, long time. So are, are you guys Twitter shareholders? No, tiny. Okay. I, I think just part of the, it, the part of the problem is that uh, a lot of people haven't internalized that the the tech bubble of like COVID has popped. And so they're still attached to that, like, I don't know, $77 share price. Uh, so the $54 offers just feels lower uh, or feels too low. Uh, and I mean, I think realistically, though, with inflation, ever like uh, all, all uh, kind of long duration types of tech plays are probably priced uh, fairly at this point. Yeah, Twitter only needs to look at Netflix that was trading at $700 at one point during the pandemic and now is trading at whatever, $200 to know that maybe they shouldn't be holding themselves to the high watermark uh, of what was their 52-week high or whatever happened in the pandemic. Uh, another topic we wanted to hit, Andreessen Horowitz uh, announced this week that they were launching an accelerator called called Start. So for more than a year, A16Z has quietly piloted its own take on an accelerator for early stage entrepreneurs um, in exchange for a, as of now, unannounced percentage ownership. Andreessen Start is going to offer up to a million dollars in venture capital. Uh, the checks are coming out of Andreessen's $400 million seed fund that closed in August 2021. Uh, the areas they're going to focus on are consumer, enterprise, fintech, games, other, and then uh, I thought interesting, American dynamism. Uh, so there's no standard deal that's going to be in place. They're going to negotiate separately with each startup. Uh, they're potentially going to scale up and down as they as potentially makes sense for them. And um, yeah, so it's interesting, uh, I guess. Zach, what what are your thoughts on why Andreessen would do this? Sequoia obviously announced something that was comparable uh, a few months ago, I guess. So what's your opinion here? Yeah, I mean, look at what Andreessen's doing here, what Sequoia's done with ARC, which is their programmer starts in India even before that. Now, I, I will say what's interesting about a lot of these programs is even if they only fund whatever it is, 10 or 11 you know, companies per cycle, 
they still get access to, via the application process, hundreds, if not thousands of people who will likely apply to this, right? So if you're Andreessen or Sequoia, even for the limited cost of doing 11 of these deals, if you can have you know a, a relatively emerging investor, junior investor comb through a number of these applications, you can actually probably see a lot of the same cycle of folks who would go through YC uh, pretty early uh, in that process before they've gone through YC as well. I, I think oh, the, the target of their audience, uh, and from what I've heard through the grapevine uh, from colleagues, uh, is that they've been proactively reaching out to a very specific type of founder uh, which is like these experienced tech executives, like chief product officers, uh, kind of senior product managers at uh, sort of the big tech companies. Um, and it, it seems to me like they're effectively like scaling out an EIR program. Um, and that seems to be kind of a, the big point of differenti- differentiation from YC, uh, which, you know, takes bets on those kind of young and foolish college dropouts or junior Facebook software engineers. I, I don't know if actually that's going to lead to better outcomes or returns. I mean, Probably because uh, at least uh, these people know how to manage teams. They know how to operationalize uh, a, a product development cycle. Uh, they probably won't be as gritty. I, I, they won't have the same level of grit. I, but um, so I think for them, like uh, for these types of can, like these types of founders, offering a million dollars is like a nice cushion. Like before, because they've been infanticized in their previous roles at these, you know, big tech companies, and they've been afraid to take the plunge. I've heard this in private conversations, like, uh, what if I can't raise money? And I've always told them, like, look, it's it's easy to raise. Raising money is the easiest part. It's hiring. That's the challenge. Uh, And so it gets them past that mental block. Uh, And so I think that's why it's an attractive proposition. Um, And I mean, they, you could sort of like, I, I feel like I could approach any firm and uh, I could probably get some sort of check from them to get started. Uh, but I think most people actually can't really internalize that without it being put on a blog post saying, we will give you $1 million. I mean, I, I will say like, listen, we know that former CPOs, former VPs of, you know, lighthouse companies in a given industry tend to start interesting startups. But we know that as often as those folks uh, build great businesses, they equally as often, probably if not more so, um, build businesses that tend to struggle. Like the challenge I, I would have is if I'm, you know, the the CPO of any major unicorn, right? And the difference between me spending the next ten years on a company or me not spending the next ten years on a company is a million dollar check. I'm, by the way, a million dollars is a lot of money. I certainly don't have a million dollars in cash. Okay, so I am not throwing stones out of my glass house on this one. But I'm also not a VP or a C-suite executive from like a superstar, you know, Decacorn company from the last couple of years. If the million dollars really what flips you from, I'm going to stay in my relatively cushier job, or I'm going to go be a really early stage gritty founder, I, I sort of question your commitment to doing it for the next 10 years. Well, they were very specific in their language on their blog post. I think they, they, they had one line in there where like, if you haven't left your day job yet, uh, consider applying. Uh, so I, I think they they just need to uh, they need to like they need to market to that type of uh, segment of people, uh, and I, I don't know if they'll actually end up building great companies. Um, I, I, at least I Andreessen has effectively also been doing this in the background before this program existed. Yeah. Uh, at least all like my friends that uh, at Facebook that ultimately went to start companies uh, during COVID and after. Uh, they they all went started with Andreessen, uh, and part of it was 
I, I think they didn't know how to pitch. And Andreessen was sort of accommodating around that. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of like, you know, I hate to say it like this, but there is a ton of alpha as a VC at taking somebody who's super smart and just didn't spend 50K to hire, you know, fourth and king to design their deck or whatever, whatever they're charging, 100K now, I don't know. Uh, and being able to like help them articulate the vision for their company and invest really early versus waiting to only look at the companies that already have hired the deck designer and, the, and you know, have workshopped their pitch within an inch of death. It's it's all a learnable skill, and I think totally. that once once you as an investor acknowledge that, I think then uh, you can start uh, looking past it to see is there something there. Andreessen Horowitz should be careful if they're going to fuck with YC. You know, Breslow Breslow got knocked off his throne <laughs> by, uh, by by you know putting his hand in the wrong in the wrong bin or whatever. So I I, I would suggest they proceed with caution here. All right. So what you're going to hear next is a uh, interview that I did with Keith Raboy at Miami Tech Week. Uh, obviously, I am not a professional interviewer. Uh, so and Keith and I are, are definitely friendly. And so uh, it's a little bit of just a uh, a casual conversation. We went into a bunch of different stuff, which you'll you'll hear. And uh, yeah, he's he's never short on opinions. And so definitely a fun conversation. Excited for you to hear it. Thanks, everyone, for joining. I'm here today with uh, with Keith Raboy. We are here for Miami Tech Week. So I figured we'd do it in person. Thanks for doing this, Keith. Welcome to Miami. Yes. I. Uh, so for Keith and I are friendly, I, I, whatever the line in between that I get him to do this, but also not the line to his uh, to his very fun birthday parties that I've heard a lot about. So whatever <laughs> whatever that middle group is. Uh, but we also share an investment in, uh, in Ramp together. Yeah. So at least you picked a good company. I know. I know. Well, I, I need you to filter more of those my way. Um, so yes. We are here. We have quite a contingency for Redpoint uh, down this week. We're excited to see what what is. I guess this is the second Miami Tech Week. It is. So Delian, uh, my colleague at Founders Fund, started Tech Week last year. He really wanted an excuse to move his younger friends to Miami. Yep. And so we created uh, Tech Week as a way to overcome the inertia and get people to visit Miami. And then this year we've blown it out like 10x. I we were actually invited to a closing party for Miami Tech Month. So now it's it's turning it's really there's a sprawl going on here. It with, is between Bitcoin, NFT week. Uh, yeah, every every everybody in tech is here this month. Everybody who is anybody in tech has been here this month. The uh and then I guess FTX is next week in the Bahamas. And that I mean that's like a you know whatever a county of the of Miami. Well, well then we come back with F one. Uh, yeah, so yeah, you're yeah. ready for F one. Which is Apparently, like the hottest sports ticket. I was talking to some of my friends that are like huge sport guys, and they said it's just going to be insane trying to get seats. The hotel, uh, the the hotel rates for the year are never higher, or have never been higher than they are for early May, which is you know past the peak season of weather. So it's going to be an epic event in Miami. Is this the first time they've done that, or is yeah, it- this is the first time Miami's hosted an F one race but it's going to be incredible. It's actually fascinating, this drive to survive thing. It's such an interesting, taking this like little niche sport and blowing it out and now Miami leaning into it. Miami's leaning into it. Vegas just announced they're going to do a nighttime F1, which would be super exciting, but everybody's coming here for that weekend. Um, it's going to be equivalent to our Basel. Yeah, wow. Well. Uh, so obviously you've, uh, so you moved to Miami in December? Of- December 10th, 2020. 2020. So we're, we're what, 15 months, 16 months at this point. Uh, so you, you, I know you've told the story before, but the, the criteria you were thinking about in picking a city, you were fed up with the Bay Area to say? Yeah. So we were fed up. My husband and I were fed up with uh, the COVID restrictions, the lockdown, the crime, the homelessness, and the taxation, the regulation. We, we, and our diagnosis was everything was going to get worse before we'd get better. And we didn't want to sit through the curve as, you know, waste years of our lives as everything was getting worse before, you know, one day there'd be like light at the end of the tunnel. So we started filtering cities of where we can move to both professionally and personally, both at Founders Fund and internally in our family. And 
our family criteria was simply warm weather, access to an international airport, cosmopolitan food and uh, shopping in a Barry's boot camp. Just apply in a, in a tax rate below 4.5%. You apply those five criteria and there's no cities except Miami in the US. And, and, uh, and then the big other one was international airport, right? Yeah, international airport was pretty critical, uh, partially so people could visit us, founders, et cetera, and partially because I do have to yeah, travel. Not, yeah, uh, and that, that's the one that, uh, uh, I, my family's all from Nashville and uh, Nashville's near and dear to my heart. And uh, yeah, I think that was where it seems like it, it worked out to your yes. to your benefit, to Miami's benefit, all that, but what could have been uh, in some ways. if Nashville Yeah, Nashville had... was disqualified of the founders fund list explicitly due to the lack of international airports. Yeah, that's a bummer. Austin, too, in some ways, really doesn't have an international airport. Yeah. They, it, Austin's an interesting one because they were such a, it was, it was like kind of the third or fourth tech city for so long. And it feels like they kind of flubbed. The oh, yeah. No one prominent in tech has moved since I announced I was coming to Miami. Is that right? Yeah. You're capturing that outflow. Uh, it's a zero sum opportunity between, yeah. I mean, it kind of is. I mean, well, I don't know if it's zero sum, but strictly speaking, there are people who have more and less influence. People are going to be more and less successful. And I want 99% of them here. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, how do you think about, uh, I, I feel like I, I, it's weird. I was, I was, before we were starting, it's a, it's a weird straw man of like the San Francisco advocate or, or supporter, which there are some still out there, believe it or not, uh, the dyed in the wool. I am, I am not that. I think San Francisco has a, has a role in the overall tech ecosystem. But how do you think about like the public uh, drawing the people to Miami and is it, is it at the expense of San Francisco? Is it at the expense of other cities? How do you sort of think about where San Francisco is today? Well, I think San Francisco is the next Detroit. I think the writing's on the wall and they'll look obvious in hindsight. Everybody be like, well, of course it's Detroit, but right. Detroit took 10 years to fall apart. Um, it was the epicenter of American business in the United States for 20, 30, 40 years. And then it fell apart within a decade and it's taken 30, 40 years to rebuild. And that's going to happen in the Bay area. So fundamentally right now, the way I think about Miami is Miami is the future. So you can either be part of the past or the future. And some people opt in to be part of the past. They're old, they're aged, their brain doesn't, isn't that flexible anymore. And there's people who are embracing the future and they're all moving to Miami. I'm going to get uh, a hard time for not pushing back on some of these things. And I want to, I want to you, you should push back because I'll give you evidence. No, 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 I don't, I don't actually don't even believe uh, any of the arguments I would actually have. <laughs> I, I actually kind of on your side with a lot of these things, but I, uh, no, I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the proof's in the pudding. Now, and so so was uh, the original mission for uh, Miami Tech Week and doing this whole thing together from Delian's mind, was it to get, was it to convince people that were kind of Bay, I mean, obviously other cities as well, but Bay Area native to see the light at the end what, of the tunnel? The, the best metaphor I, uh, I'm going to borrow from someone else is Miami's like a, a addictive consumer app. And the problem with a new app for consumers, is you have to initiate that download. Like yep. until you get people to try your app, you have no idea of convincing them about the engagement and the quality. So a lot of people have never been to Miami, especially from California. Yeah. New Yorkers have always yeah. been to Miami for a variety of reasons, but a lot of my California friends had never been here. So we needed to create an excuse to overcome that inertia. And then when people come here, they're very pleasantly surprised. They see the most, most arresting experience to start is people are happy. That was the one thing I didn't realize when I moved here was how happy everybody would be. You go to a coffee shop, you go to a restaurant, you go to a bar, you go to Barry's Boot Camp, wherever you go, you will find happy people inevitably. And that's made it easy to layer on new people because people want to be around. Happiness is contagious. And so people want to be around happy people. I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I had a friend of mine in technology visit me last June uh, from North Carolina, where he had relocated to his family during COVID. And we went to dinner and I told him how everybody here is happy. And he kind of, you know, smiled at dinner. And then I took him to a housewarming party of some friends of ours who had moved to New York and introduced him to 30 people at this party. 
And so we were driving home after dinner and he, sa- he looks at me and he says, you know what? I didn't believe you at dinner at all, but every single one of those 30 people I met at that party was, was happy. Yeah. And you're like, is it drugs? Is it the weather? Like, what's going on? <laughs> it's definitely not drugs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not at my party. <laughs> I, uh, well, we're in the founders of an office and, uh, I've heard colloquially referred to as Miami Keith because, uh, everyone said now you're in such a good move walking around here. Yeah. I mean, well, it's impossible. I mean, sunlight, you know, vitamin D and stuff, totally. it, it contributes to it. There's lots of research behind that, but happiness is absolutely contagious. So I once interviewed Patrick Carlson at the CEO summit for coastal ventures. And I asked him, how do you have a culture at Stripe where everybody's happy? Cause everybody I knew at Stripe was happy. Yeah. And he said, I don't do anything. I just hire people who are already happy. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, you filter yeah, the right. So, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you, so there's some of that, but yeah, you can't come here and not be happy. And so my thesis was originally was engi- people are like, how are you going to get engineers to move? That was the big critique of like Miami. I was like, engineers are people. Humans have been humans since Shakespeare. So the same things that appeal to humans are going to appeal to engineers. I just need to clarify that, communicate that, amplify that. And we'll have all the engineers here. And they are. So I, have a, I run a company, a CEO, while I'm investing. And we have now 40 engineers. 75 to 80% have moved to Miami. We could easily double that engineering team in the next quarter or two if we want to. Yeah. We'll have to see whether we need that many engineers right away. But fundamentally, we go to New York. We go to Chicago. We go to LA. And we go to the Bay Area. And we tell people, you're going to be happy and you're going to be professionally challenged. Yeah. And and so the Miami, like, in willing it into existence, which I think yep. you and Delian and yep. uh, have done that, like, is it is it kind of a pet project? Is it because you'll be at the nucleus of this and therefore it's great uh, investment opportunities will come out of it? Like, how do you actually think about willing all this into existence? I think it's like starting a company. It's yeah. no different. When you start a company, everybody around you thinks it's ridiculous. It's never going to work. They have all the criticisms, all the reasons it won't work. And then you have to overcome inertia and inertia is not your friend and time is not your friend. And then you have to find ways of uh, overcoming that inertia. And then eventually you get momentum and then the network effects begin. So when I first moved to Miami, I went to a dinner that Sunday night with the mayor and like about 13 people. And that was the entire successful version of Miami attack. Now, and I did handcraft, like every single person I wanted to move here was like handworked. I'd have them stay at my house. I'd entertain them. I'd put a program of things to do and test out Miami. Now people want to move to Miami. I don't have to do anything. Yeah. There's such a network effect. I haven't been invited of, to your there's house. Thousands yet. Of people. Yeah, 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 there, yeah. There's literally thousands of people here, hundreds who've, who've been very successful yeah. in tech. So yeah, I may help connect the dots here and there, or there might be someone who's so strategic. I might use a little bit of my time yeah. to help, you know, navigate Miami for them, but that's it. it this is just propelling. And like, I, I had a birthday, my birthday's in March. So I had a birthday party already three people. March 17th is my birthday. Three people from that birthday party have already bought a place in Miami. Well, specifically, I've heard your birthday parties are a really good time. So it's not totally surprising. They're, they're boring as hell, but they're a good excuse yeah, for exactly. get people to come to visit to Miami. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, it's, uh, yeah, I'm excited for, I mean, we're, so we're recording this on Tuesday. We have, uh, it really is picking up what Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of like all the events and stuff, but it really is stacked in. I mean, it's every, it seems like someone made the joke that's a lot of VCs, but I actually, I mean, I know a lot of operators as well that are flying in for the event or are already here in the ecosystem. So I'll give you my radical theory behind the Miami movement that I can now prove empirically was the correct thesis, but a lot of people disagreed with me initially. So my thesis was having studied Silicon Valley, been old enough to have actually worked with the people who built Silicon Valley at the tail end of their career as I was starting mine, and then having read everything about the history of Silicon Valley that could be read. I had a specific view about what made Silicon Valley Silicon Valley. And I said, I'm just going to recreate that in Miami. 
And my diagnosis was the key to Silicon Valley was actually the investors. It was a, a set of people that had a very different risk appetite that all co-located. And that's what made Silicon Valley. It wasn't Stanford. It wasn't the weather. It wasn't this counterculture. That's all nonsense. I, so the first thing I did is I'm going to move the investors here. I'm going to move angel investors. I'm going to move VCs. If you look at my goals that I announced when I moved here is I want five competitive uh, firms to Founders Fund to open offices in Miami in the first year. I want the VCs in the ecosystem of angel investors to be the best possible place in the planet for them. And the founders will move here secondarily. And that's exactly what happened. Now, the reason why I say I can prove this theory is there's a great new book written about the history of venture capital called Power Law. Yeah. And he argues this thesis yeah. um, perfectly. Um, and so now I have a complete book to give people who don't believe in the Keith hypothesis. But I've been running this playbook for 16 months before the book was published. Totally. I was, uh, I was actually annoyed when it came out because I, I, I think one of the things I had done was piece together a lot of that stuff. And you really have to, I mean, it was like a pretty onerous process of like going to old Don Valentine interviews yeah. or like watching, you know, YouTube's clips of him speaking at Stanford or like Cal has a big resource of information about that stuff. And he packaged it up in such a like easy, consumable way. It's that, a great book. I highly recommend anybody yeah. interested in both entrepreneurialism or venture capital. But yes, specifically, I was lucky enough that when I started my career in Silicon Valley, I got to work with Pierre Lamont. Yep. I got to be on the board with Dick Kremlin. So I absorbed a lot of their history, you know, through that experience. And then, you know, 22 years of doing it myself, basically pieced together all these pieces. So I didn't have to go backwards too much. There was maybe the first generation of like the Traders 8 National Semiconductor. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know them. Yeah. But the next generation from, I didn't know Don, you know, et cetera. So next generation I got to meet and get to work with, yeah. which is really exciting. That's why I had this view in the back of my head of what really mattered was different than what people reflexively were articulating. Totally. No, that's interesting. It's, uh, yeah, I I'm excited to see all the people that come through. It seems like uh, there's a very loud group of, uh, it's all the very online people that are know are definitely here. And then there's like a long list of people that are like not broadcasting it, but are also definitely coming through. Oh yeah. And I mean, like last night was the first night and I was at a dinner and then a party and ran into a ton of people that have not broadcasted yeah, exactly. here that are very successful and very interesting. Totally. I just bumped into uh, one in your office here That's for true. a board meeting. Yeah, that, yeah. Exactly. And I don't, I, he's, he's definitely not going to publicly proclaim it, but we'll, uh, yeah. Well, that's, he, he's not going to have a choice because the founders he's working with are going to post a photo of him here oh, yeah. um, later today. Yeah, okay. So there's actually going to be evidence of it. Uh, well, that's good. You moved out to San Francisco in 90... Uh, 2000. Okay, I, I thought it was before that. Uh, and where are we, what does this remind you of right now uh, in Miami? Well, other people have told me that have very high fidelity experiences that it's more like New York 2008. Yeah. I've heard this from a lot of people who actually built New York technology sure. in 2008. Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't there, although I participated. I grew sure. up in New Jersey and New York and you know, lived in New York. So I understood it. But I think that's the best metaphor. Yeah. The venture metaphor is we're at like a Series B company. Yeah. We went quickly from C to Series B. Now we have to prove that we can scale this. Yeah. When, what, what do you think in 10 years, what, what does the geographic dispersion look like? You know, 2032 of uh, dollars from venture. What, what's the split? Yeah, so, you think? so I don't care what mediocre venture capitalists do, but I care what we do at Founders Fund. Okay. So the criteria I set was going to be our new fund should have equal dollars allocated to Miami in the entire Bay Area. Wow. So in the last fund, and this is looking backwards, so a lot of bias here. We were 24% Bay Area and 9 or 10% Miami. And I only moved here halfway through that fund cycle. Mm. So we're almost caught up. Run rate, it's probably- Yeah, so I expect this new fund to be about hopefully 15 or 16% Miami. And hopefully the Bay Area is no more than 15 or 16%. Wow. That'd be a pretty significant accomplishment. Totally. In crazy. three years to go from zero 
to on par with the Bay Area for Founders Fund would be amazing. Yeah, well, and especially, I mean, in mass, it's what, 45% probably Bay Area still. So obviously a lagging indicator. Yeah, but I think we'll have other funds follow us. And, you know, the disadvantage of venture is you get an advantage for about one to three years. Yeah. And then people emulate what's working. Yeah. So I suspect a lot of funds will be copying our strategy in Miami. Yeah, well, uh, there's a lot of people here that are scouting it out. So uh, good. Well, uh, shifting gears a little bit. So uh, you're... We originally, I originally uh, exchanged notes with you over Twitter. Your uh, Twitter persona, I think, is renowned, uh, and it's a little bit of uh, if people Talk are about pot and kettle. Yeah, oh, that's, that's fair. Yeah, two 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 people here that uh, maybe have a little bit of a distinction of their in person. But how do you think about like uh, it's clearly something of a marketing. I don't know if it's it's just fun and you you mess around and have a good time with it, or how, do you think about a marketing strategy? I can tell you my my view of it, but well, it is a marketing strategy in some extent. I learned this when I was working at Square. I read every single tweet about Square for almost three years. And what I realized is that you could amplify value propositions by retweeting real users' experiences. And that VCs noticed this, and it helped us with race movies, (laughs) and it helped with recruiting. So that experience bled into other things I've done professionally. I launched Open Door, I tweeted about Open Door, became a VC, tweeted about our portfolio companies and about our brand at both Coastline and now Founders Fund. And so it is a marketing platform and it does resonate because the target audiences are pretty similar. People who use Twitter, follow Twitter, tend to overlap with the people who are interested in technology. The flip side is I also have a large following now and I felt like I'd be neglecting the advantages of having a following if on some issues I didn't proselytize. Yeah. I felt like I have 300,000 followers. If there's things that are important to me in my life, I should talk about them because otherwise, what am I doing with this audience? Like, so I do talk about issues that transcend, you know, pure marketing for the fund. And I think that makes it more interesting for many of my followers, probably alienates a few, but fundamentally it's mostly used professionally and personally to move ideas forward that I believe the world needs to hear. Yeah. And I think you were the first I, uh, that taught me a very important lesson of not necessarily to engage with, uh, with, uh, bad faith arguments. And, uh, I think notoriously wrong is, uh. Yeah, that was an old Squareism. So there's this one annoying person who kept writing the stupidest tweets about Square. But because I was running a company, you can't always like share all the reasons why. Totally. And but it, but I didn't want. The and you've record. already lost if we're arguing. Yeah, and you don't. I, but I didn't want the record. Like people assume, like, well, they read this tweet about Square it must be true. So I wanted to authoritatively say it's not true factually. And so I got in this debate using the wrong thing. It became kind of an internal, kind of an amusing thing. Like a lot of yeah. our company meetings would have various tweets with my little wrong comments. So I kept that up a little bit. Maybe I should get rid of it and try something new. I, well, I, I like it. I, I, I will use a, uh, a screenshot of version of it occasionally when, uh, when someone else is being bad faith. So it works, it works well for me, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's an interesting marketing platform to the extent that you can, uh, I've seen your views, uh, the companies, I think, have benefited from the awareness of it. I mean, definitely. I mean, uh, there are times when in a competitive situation, like very hyper competitive, I'm competing with other VCs who are good, you know, to lead an investment round. Some of the founders do, well, many of the founders do reference checks, but one of the things that resonates with them is they're definitely significant founder CEOs who I've worked with will say, like when the company needed help, like defense, you know, in articulation of why they were succeeding when the rest of the world was against them. I would use my platform and my following to help them. Yeah. And that's a real value when something goes wrong. Yeah. So that's helpful. The bad side or the flip side of the crazy side I've had over Twitter over the last decade is 
I decided to chase this fool's errand of correcting everything wrong on the internet, yeah. which is just a bad idea. There's so many bad, so many dumb things on the internet yeah. that I need to be more disciplined about trying to correct everything wrong that someone publishes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to try to be more, uh, you know, focus my time on something else. What? Yeah, yeah. Correcting everyone on the internet that's wrong, I think, is a uh, endless exercise. <laughs> yeah. I think I think you might lose that battle. Uh, so I guess just because we're talking about it, what do you think about? Uh, it, we don't necessarily need to go into the different personalities bidding on Twitter right now, but what do you think about like the core fundamental problems of either the business, the platform, the opportunity that could be with someone that you used to work with or like, what do you think of Twitter today? Well, I, I think Twitter's a mess. Um, partially it's been underperforming, um, you know, probably product velocity, but consistency and high fidelity. It's the most important social platform. So to be clear, my views have been consistent. You can read tweets from the last decade. The most important social platform in the world is Twitter. In because of impact influence and impact yeah. in society, yeah. input of countries globally, period. No exception to that. However, could it be a better business with more value and more value creation? Absolutely. But more importantly, it's ideologically bankrupt right now. Um, the new regime is anti-speech. And the whole point of Twitter is to give people unheard voices, long tail voices, more of a platform, less gatekeepers, more access, more democratization. And the new regime thinks their job is to censor. And so I'm very happy to see that people who don't believe in censorship are trying to do things, whether it's directly, indirectly, buy, acquire, run, whatever, to solve this problem. The world needs to hear more voices with a more diverse set of views, not less voices, more controlled by people who already have power. What do you, what do you think of, um, I mean, the specific examples that come to mind on the, like, suppressing voices and all that, maybe you have a better example, but obviously the, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop thing very specifically and the president being kicked off the platform after January. 4th. Well, I think kicking the president off the platform where you have Putin literally on the platform today yeah. is completely, in, like, completely indefensible. Yeah. Like, there's no way you can have Putin tweeting and Trump ban. Like Trump is not going out murdering people like yeah. for fun. Yeah. Like that, that just makes no sense. So there's just a subjectivity to the rules. Subjectivity. It's like ideologically, intellectually and ideologically bankrupt. In addition, there are clearly people on Twitter suppressing things that are critical of the CCP. Yeah. Like, so for example, my husband wrote a policy paper that was published by foreign policy, the, the most elite foreign policy, you know, sort of publication on the planet that Twitter will not let him buy ads against. There's no possible defense for that, except that someone works for the CCP at Twitter. And I've tried to get this fixed and they still won't fix it. So like there's, there were, Twitter is working for the CCP, supporting Russia's, you know, dictatorial regime and suppressing Trump at the same time, which makes no sense. Then the COVID, let alone the COVID stuff. Yeah. So almost everything that was published on Twitter was wrong. And almost everybody who had a different opinion that was turned out to be accurate was suppressed on Twitter. So fundamentally, this is what happens when you give people power to make decisions. They will either reinforce their power or they reinforce the powers that be. And the whole world of science and technology are disruptive people with disruptive ideas that prove to be right with the benefit of hindsight. Do you think uh, that, so just to back up on that, you think someone at Twitter is working with the CCP? Oh, I know for a fact. Like there are definitely spies for the CCP that work at Twitter and Google. Hmm. And, and they're suppressing stuff that they don't. hundred percent. And then fortunately, after the next election, we're going to investigate this. I'm very excited that the new regime in Congress will definitely look into what CCP spies are working at these technology companies. Interesting. I, uh, and so do you think, like, how do you actually solve this? Is it, is it just more speech and sort of letting it 
yes, be out there. I think this is not, again, I generally default to very basic principles and they're almost always right and everything else is noise. Anything that can be published in a book should be allowed on Twitter. So if Donald Trump can write a book, he should be able to tweet. If he wants to write something that would be banned in a book, so, you know, obscene, pornographic, we have principles for hundreds of years, actually arguably thousands, if you go back to, you know, sort of Greece and stuff that have worked. Why are we trying to come up with new principles when we know what works? Do you, do you not think that the scale of the internet and the ubiquity of some of this stuff changes the paradigm? Like we need to rethink antitrust laws or some of these things because of the digital, you know, the I think that's bill. usually an excuse. And if someone has a reasonable argument, they should point to specifically what's different about a digital regime. But the printing press is basically all these controversies that people debate about Twitter were unlocked when the printing press happened. All the powers, all the governments that existed, all the religions that existed hated the printing press. But the printing press had been one of the best things ever for mankind. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you touched on uh, China. I can't, I can't be remiss to, uh, you've been pretty vocal anti-China uh, and other, I mean, congrats on the Midas list, but other funds out there have, uh, have entire strategies in China. What do you, like, do you think that that is at odds with being a uh, pro-U.S. American fund? Well, I definitely think it's morally and ethically at odds. It's legally permissible, which I think the law should change. I don't think it should be acceptable for an American fund to invest in China without the, without the CCP changing um, sort of either its principles or being you know, removed from power. Yeah. But I think that's up to Congress to change the law. So they're not, for the most part, I don't think these funds are violating issues. the law. I think we at Founders Fund believe as American citizens, we have an obligation not to help the CCP. So we would never invest in things that would help the CCP. And we're pretty critical of funds that do while taking the privileges and advantages of being an American. Has that been, has that been something I, I've noticed it of, of late? Is it something to draw a distinction more and more and call people's attention to the, you know, the potential conflicts that exist here? Well, I definitely think the agenda of the CCP is now more activist, both internally and externally. And I think, therefore, it's more obvious to a broader swath of the American public how we have to confront some of these problems as opposed to ignore them. Yes. So, therefore, I think there's going to be more pressure on financial services firms, just like there's going to be more pressure on corporations that do business with China. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and it, it's, I mean, the the other thing that exists in all of this is TikTok, right? And what is possibly going to, I mean, it's, I spent a lot of time on it. Redpoint has a TikTok presence on it, right? It's an amazing platform in so many ways, and it's also absolutely terrifying, right? Yeah, so I'm not allowed to use TikTok, as you might guess. Um, so fundamentally, yeah, I'm a, uh, I was an advocate of the Trump administration's tentative decision to ban TikTok. I think we should absolutely ban TikTok for a variety of good reasons. Actually, I think the, one of the issues the Trump administration got into was there was two or three distinct reasons to ban TikTok. Yeah. And Rather than just settle on one and you know have the policy follow that, they're trying to triangulate these three different reasons. There's an economic retaliation reason, like American social media companies are not allowed in China. Yes, arguably we should have reciprocal rules. But there's a national security rationale, which I think is pretty important, and I think that was probably the one that they should have pursued. And ultimately, the American administration needs to ban TikTok. Yeah, or at least bring like bring the code base to the United yeah, States. Yeah, there or may something. be there may be ways to make it work otherwise. To at least minimize the national security damage, absolutely. But there, there's have to be pretty clear, pretty transparent rules and pretty difficult to manipulate because otherwise, definitely people will manipulate. I feel like a crazy person. Every I always get yelled at online for defending Facebook and stuff, but I'm like, at least we can call Zuckerberg to Congress, right? Like, at least we can, you know, versus. 
TikTok, I, I think mostly gets, I mean, not a free pass. I think people are cognizant of this, but it's it's pretty scary, right? Like the amount of stuff that's going on It's there. scary. It's a great platform to influence behavior. 100%. Um, so I was actually told a pretty good anecdote that I really believe that the initial plan when um, musically sold was to basically dumb down the American kids so that China can compete better with us, <laughs> which actually is a pretty good strategy in some ways. Um, that isn't like, arguably, that's not a short-term national security uh, problem, but it is actually, you know, it sort of betrays a certain mindset. Totally. Well, I think American kids are probably doing it to themselves as well. It seems at times, but yeah. Yeah. You never really know whether that's true, but I, I do think there are major issues in allowing the CCP to control content, manipulate content that affects a whole swath of the American public. We would not allow this on Twitter. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, I guess kind of shifting gears a little bit. Uh, so I think almost to the day you called the market top, uh, like almost very literally, which, I, you know, whatever. Uh, that An amazing uh, serendipitous uh, prognosis of what was going on in the ecosystem. Uh, what did you see at that time of doing that? And then also like what's happened? How have you internalized some of the stuff that's happened in the last couple of months since then? Yeah, to me, this is not that difficult. It, there was basically, as soon as interest rates started to go up, there was going to be a market correction. There has to be. Technologies, stocks generally generate cash flow significant years in the future. Yep. And so if you change the discount rate, the value of the company just has to change. And so the, the thing that happened in October was all these inflation deniers basically ran out of excuses. Yep. So there was this, it's transitory, it's this or that, excuses that the Biden administration was proffering. And you know, a set of the market, a set of people were believing you know, nonsense. It was obviously true. Like if you look at January 1st, I posted that we're in for serious inflation this year. You know, Jack Dorsey posted we're in hyperinflation and everybody critiqued him even more so, you know, the, the Twitter, the Twitter debate. Fundamentally, the inflation was very obvious, but there was enough excuses that the Biden administration was throwing out that people kept believing. Then finally in October, I think the administration, the Fed basically explicitly said we have inflation. Yeah. So as soon as that cracked, I was like, duh, interest rates are going up. Well, that means technology stocks are going down. This is inevitable. Fortunately, Ari Levy from uh, CNBC, I think, um, asked me um, point blank, is this the top of the market? Uh, and yeah, I was Twitter like, threat, yes. right? yeah. I mean, I've internally been talking about it in a founder's fund and debating, you know, what we should be doing differently because of this. But the fact that he asked me, is this really the top of the market, happened to clarify my brain. I'm like, yeah, this actually is right now because there's no more excuses. Yeah. Inflation's real and nobody can deny it anymore. And that's basically what's happened. And interest rates you know, are probably going to continue to go up for a while. But all you have to do is monitor the inflation rate. Like This isn't rocket science at all. Every month, you get a government report card on the inflation rate. If inflation keeps going up, stock technology stocks are going to keep going down. If inflation stabilizes without having to raise interest rates, then either things will be stable or things might get better. But it, you don't only have to monitor one data point. It's not, it, this really is simple. It's a, well, it, it, every other change that I've lived through had some like very specific, almost micro thing that happened to the ecosystem or the macro. Let's talk about this. So in 1999, so talk about the benefits of studying history. 1999, the market collapsed in 2000, yep. you know, in March and then in June. The specific cause of that was six federal uh, interest rate hikes yep. by the Federal Reserve. And 99% of the people in tech for either didn't know this or forgot it. And they all should have known it. Most journalists forgot it or shouldn't or should have known it. But if you lived through that market correction, which I did in 2000, you knew exactly what triggered it, which was the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. So it's like, 
if the Federal Reserve starts raising interest rates again, guess what's going to happen? We're going to live through 2000 again. Totally. This is not, again, like most of life is really simple. And, and I was honestly, uh, it was interesting. Most of the examples that I had lived through were like, I remember in 2016 when Tableau and LinkedIn took a bloodbath, right? Yeah. And that was like, everyone was very concerned about this very small park pocket of software and what was ultimately going to impact each other. And all those things sold off for a little while. Or then there was a very big COVID thing where it was like, hey, the fundamentals of these businesses are going to change, right? And therefore, what all is going to happen? But this was the first one that was like, I guess dating back to 99, that predates mine. But the first one that was like actually as simple as, uh, you know, interest rates, inflation, all yeah, that. Yeah, it's just like, do you ever see anybody build a discounted cash flow model? Yeah. Like, I'm like, I mean, I don't do that. As Delia has talked about publicly, I never look at these models, yeah. but I definitely watch my colleagues and he changes me to change yeah, the variable. Actually, I definitely could see what happens with Excel. Yeah, 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 that's interesting. Um, so how did you internalize that? Like, what, what did you guys, how did you think about it? How'd you act on it? Where are we now? Well, we, I had started wanting us to avoid investing for the most part last summer. And had some success or failures with my colleagues uh, convincing them. Uh, Peter definitely also is a macro uh, and is actually the best macro thinker that I know. Also believe that we're heading for a recession and inflation, et cetera. But there was so much momentum going on in the world that I don't think we were as disciplined as we should have been about like ceasing investing and being really restrictive on valuations until about October. Yeah. Then I think we did shift uh, pretty fundamentally about not being willing to chase valuations that other people were willing to pay. Last year, as I tweeted also, we were price takers. So basically, the company would set the effective valuation, and you could either be in or out, and you could decide to compete at that price, but you didn't have a choice of resetting the price. Starting over the summer into October, we started saying, we're going to be disciplined on price and we're not going to chase valuations. Yes. But and counterintuitively, you also leaned into a handful, I mean, one that we worked together on, but you leaned in on a handful of opportunities that uh, you saw outsized potential. And w what was going through that? I know at some extent, accumulating uh, advantages that go through these markets. Yeah, levels. I mean, to some extent, we thought we had asymmetric. Those are all companies that we were previously investors in. Ramp, for yeah. example, Kavok, yeah. et cetera. We leaned into pretty aggressively. We felt we had asymmetric information about the quality of the team, the, the caliber, you know, the opportunity in the market, et cetera. Uh, we do like concentrated bets as Founders Fund. We're probably most famous among LPs for concentrating our dollars yeah. into winning companies. It's a strategy that Peter and Brian and Napoleon here have really executed. It's not something I typically do. But fundamentally, that's the Founders Fund mentality is find winners and really double, triple down. And we felt like there was some opportunities to trip, double, triple, quadruple down. Yeah. So we, in some ways, the, those are intellectually inconsistent, but also depends on timeframes. So these are all growth fund investments. Growth fund thinks in like a three or four year time horizon. My predictions about the current market are more like this month, this quarter, yeah. this year. So depending on how you map to different timeframes, you can come up with a different answer, whether you should be leaning in or leaning back. I never wanted to pull back, for example, in seed investing. I love writing seed checks. That's my forte. I don't think there's any reason to adjust your seed strategy based upon macro data. Dynamics because you're going to be building a company for six to 12 years in the future. Nobody knows what the world's going to look yeah. like in six to 12 years. And it'll either work or it won't. And it yeah. won't be because you paid 10 or 20 nope. or 50 posts nope. or whatever nope. it is. Nope. Yeah. So I, yeah. So I, I think we're going to be very aggressive in seed. I want to be as aggressive as ever funding seed companies. But by the time the series B kicks in, you need to be very judicious about what price you're paying for what risk. Yeah. And it's interesting. So I guess the state of the venture landscape right now, as you think about it, like, uh, so, so you lived, you started your career at the tail end of the, you know, yep. whatever the Cramlicks and the Pierre Lamont and all those guys. Um, where, 
and then we've I, I I say that there was kind of the broadcast television days and the uh, cable television days, and now we're sort of in the streaming wars. Where do, what do you think is going on in the market at large? Like people are getting bigger, have gotten bigger over the last year. Do you think we're going to see a consolidation of brands that exist? What, yeah, I believe we've been you know vertically integrated. Other people have talked about it more elegantly, including one of my junior colleagues, Everett, written about yep. this as well. I, I think this is like the law firm error. Like you have to be multi-stage or it's going to be very difficult to compete. I think brands that were very successful with focus, like Meritech in the growth sector or Benchmark, et cetera, are going to really struggle in this vertically integrated multi-stage environment. I think a lot of the seed funds that were doing well, solo JPs, et cetera, were kind of relying upon artificial markups yep. where everything was up into the right for the last two or three years. They looked good on paper, but until those turn into a true DPI or liquidity, they're not going to they're not going to perform anywhere near expectations. I mean, those portfolios should be written down by divide by three, yeah. uh, just to adjust to the public comparables. They don't look so hot. So I think the trend of launching a new fund, raising a hundred million dollars plus, everybody think you're the coolest fund ever. That that trend is pretty much done. Yeah, interesting. I guess one one other thread I wanted to go down was just investment. What what you look for in entrepreneurs and all that. And I I think it's. I mean, I'm, I'm mostly investing post-product market fit and you're mostly investing pre-product market fit. I, I invest in uh, dot-coms, you invest in, you know, people, right? Yep. And that's literally uh, true. And, and so I feel like there's, uh, I, I always love peppering you with questions about how you actually think about that. And so it may, maybe the, the, the types of things you're looking for in entrepreneurs in general, like what makes people really spike uh, to you want to be able to write a check into them? Yeah. So my preferred course is to invest on a team and a keynote deck and nothing else. Yeah. No business metrics, no product even sometimes, but basically nothing that another investor can kind of uh, evaluate. Yeah. Once there's metrics, there's a lot of smart people in our world. And so I feel like that gets commoditized. But if you just force a decision on a deck and a team, there's very few VCs who want to write significant checks against that. So I'd prefer to compete on that dimension. The and is it mostly mostly referral based that things are coming in or well at that level it's often not a referral I have to intercept before anybody else gets yeah, involved of, because then some of them are still like people. raising rate yeah I'd prefer like nobody else being on the cap table yeah. ideally that said uh, definitely we'll look at investments from you know highly qualified referrals or even occasionally from a Twitter you know yeah, sure. a random tweet etc your DMs are about to be just a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in any event. Um, there's always a spark. So the thing that leads me to want to write a check is a spark. And the spark can be different. And in fact, is different with different founders. But I have this reaction like, oh my God, I have never seen anybody like this before. And it could be like, this is the greatest salesperson I've ever met. This is the greatest storyteller I've ever met. This is the most tenacious person I've ever met. This is the smartest person I've ever met. They're very different. But there's this ear that perks. And I'm like, holy cow. If I don't feel that, I usually don't want to, I almost never want to invest. The thesis behind that is, if you think about how heroic it is to create a business in a proverbial garage with a co-founder and say, I'm going to reinvent the world, I'm going to reinvent society, I'm going to reinvent in the industry, that's like borderline irrational. Yeah. And so my analysis over 40 years is the only people who actually reinvent the world have some Herculean ability in some dimension that's not normal. Otherwise, the chance you're going to reinvent the world rounds to literally zero. Yeah. So I don't want to be investing in zeros. So fundamentally, I need that spark or I won't write the chap. Another way that does resonate with me is uh, Balaji wrote this cool, well, he taught a class at Stanford called Startup Engineering, where he expressed this concept of an intellectual maze that later Chris Dixon cut and pasted into a blog. The founders who can walk you through the intellectual maze from starting to success instead of failure are very rare. And when you meet a founder who can literally draw that map, the treasure map for you, 
uh, I would also invest in that. Yeah, got it. Uh, uh, well, the good news is Chris won't hear this because uh, he, he blocked me a long time ago on Twitter. For, <laughs> <laughs> so he, they don't, you don't have to worry about that, uh, the copy and paste thing. Um, it's interesting. So so th- is it some specific spike that, that just, it, like, is this totally intuitive to you? Is it something that you think can be imparted on people having, is it pattern matching over time? How do you think about that? I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely the hardest part of venture capital to teach. Yeah. If I could teach it to more of my colleagues, I would. Um, so, and if you develop this kind of spidey sense, I think you can be a successful investor period and you're ready to write your own checks. Yeah. So if someone shows this propensity, I would embrace them, fund them, give them money for their own fund, or try to recruit them here to founders fund. So it's pretty rare. You can teach some things around pattern matching. So for example, we recently funded a founder who's about 20 years old who I met on a Zoom call and my first reaction was like, oh my God, he's another Delian. It's like literally like another Delian. That's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I called up Delian. I'm like, you have to talk to this guy. And he's like, why? And the the idea sounded kind of crazy, but I'm like, this guy is literally you. And Delian didn't believe it. Then he started talking to him on the phone. He's like, oh my God, he really is like me. That's so so I found another Delian. Oh, wow. That's a, yeah. Well, I mean, then that's a pattern matching experience. Was was Delian, I mean, in general, is that like, is that an archetype or uh, obviously people are one of one in that, but like, do you have a mental model for a lot of the people you go invest with or? Um, no, but when like, when, when you see it, there's like a trait, like, so for example, let's talk about a well-known entrepreneur, Max Lepto. Yeah, sure. So I remember when I first joined PayPal, about three months later, Reed Hoffman came up to me and said, you know what's special about Max? No. I feel like a lot, but I don't know where you're going with this. Wait, he's like, Max is a first-rate business mind paired with a first-rate technologist. And in Silicon Valley, there's almost none of those. Yeah. And like this literally, this conversation happened in January 2000. Uh, Yes, January 2000. Or January 2001. And so if I find someone who's a first-rate technologist and a first-rate business mind, I would definitely invest. Because now watching 20 years later, I'm like, you're right. There's about five of those people. Or like Jack Dorsey is actually first-rate business mind, first, pretty first-rate technology mind, and a first-rate design mind, yeah. which is why he's had like ridiculous success, is the Venn diagram of those three things doesn't really exist. Yeah. Maybe, maybe like Steve Jobs. You know, like there's not that many people who can do all three. Yeah, interesting. No, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a very unique traits in people. Uh, I just have Delian written down here with a question mark. I'm not sure well, Lots of questions about Yeah, that. I know, I know. I, I, I don't, <laughs> yeah, we don't need to get into that there. Uh, so I guess uh, because we're sort of on the the Twitter thread and, and all this, um, you know, I'm sure you've given this answer before, but uh, it's it's interesting today as you look at the people that are derivative uh, or, or, or have some lineage back to PayPal, just the number of people that are in the news today that are running, you know, different funds, different uh, different companies, all that. Like, what was it that made that unique moment in time? What, how much was uh, nature versus nurture of that specific experience that led to, I mean, Roloff's now running Sequoia. Elon's obviously his taste of Tesla, SpaceX, potentially Twitter, right? You're here. We can go down to YouTube, uh, Ma- uh, uh, Max at a firm. It's just like, it's an insane, everyone knows the list, but it's insane. Yelp, LinkedIn. Yelp, LinkedIn. Yeah, all that. Like what, what was it at that moment in time or that, that either brought everyone this talent together, causation, correlation, all that? I think the number one thing was Peter Thiel and Max Lepton were just extremely excellent at assessing and hiring. So they hired a lot of very talented people who had ambition. That was the number one drive. Like, and it was really, Peter hired most of the non-technical people and Max hired all the technical people. And everyone was 25 to 35? The, the age range probably was more like 21 to 35, okay. um, with some exceptions, but fundamentally that's about yeah. right. 
So people also had a lot of energy still. Yeah, post, good point in the career. Post PayPal experience. I think the bit, the difficulty of building PayPal, we had a lot of hostility from eBay, MasterCard, Visa, Amex, later post 9-11, the Treasury Department, all had issues with us. They were trying to kill us in different ways. So we had to confront a lot of challenges. And I think building a company under hostile circumstances led to bonding. So each of us bonded together. We saw, we got to witness what each of us was capable of under pressure. So building a company under stress, I think is a healthy exercise. And I think there were some lessons that we were ahead of the curve. Like David Sachs was ahead of the curve of creating a separate design team that the product people actually reported to for a while. He was ahead of the curve in rebranding product managers as producers to create value. We had some very advanced data science that Max Lepchin pioneered, including like some very pioneering techniques that everybody now takes for granted, including like your CAPTCHA tests that yeah. he and a couple of engineers invented but forgot to patent because we were too busy. A lot of techniques around human and not confusing human labor and math in a very clever equation. They got on the cover of Wired Magazine back in 2000 for inventing. So there was a lot of pioneering things. We did a lot of management philosophy, anti-MBA, uh, promoting people, hiring up and coming talent that are now taken for granted across the technology world. So we pioneered a lot of ideas that have spread and that's kept us quite relevant. Yeah, it's interesting. It's amazing just all the stuff that's come out of it. Well, the last one I had, obviously, uh, corporate takeovers of PayPal Mafia <laughs> has been in the news lately. Uh, so you're going to buy Barry's takeover? Yeah, I figured it, you know, I have to, uh, Eli can afford Twitter. Uh, you know, I need, yeah. I need to find something I could yeah, afford. Yeah, good, good. Well, we're um, excited. And the only thing I use more than Twitter is buy berries. So I figured I should just buy it. No, I'm just kidding. It's much healthier for your site. I already have like three jobs. I'm like ambassador to Miami. I'm the CEO of a company and, you know, serve on the board of like 18 companies as an investor. I don't have, I don't have time to run berries, at the, you know, as a side project. I think, I think that's probably a safe, uh, safe thing. How do you actually make all that? I guess last one, but how, how do you actually make all that time work? Like, how do you manage your day to day across? I mean, you essentially have three full-time gigs, right? Yeah. At least, um, yeah, <laughs> I teach berries for fun. Yeah, exactly. too. Yeah. Um, so I think the key is to have skill set and prioritization. Um, this is like an executive trait that developed 13 years running companies, um, which is basically what are your priorities and allocate your time against your priorities, mapping. Um, I think most people do not map their priorities in time well. So I have this thing called a calendar audit that I use with CEOs, which is I ask them, ask them to go to whiteboard and list their top three priorities on the left column. Then we go pull up their Google calendar and we compare what percentage of time do they actually spend against those three parties, and they never really tie. Map, yeah. Like, for example, people say recruiting is my number one party. You probably hear this in yeah, yeah, totally. all the time. Totally. I met probably one founder in my life who actually makes recruiting. Yeah, that, it maps time-based. So that. I'm always constantly doing this, um, like constantly. Like every day in the morning, I wake up and do this. I do this in my interpersonal life, which drives some of my friends crazy. Yeah. I do this professionally. I do this with like fitness. I'm always like, triaging time against priorities. Yeah. And that's how you get a lot more done is really for forcing yourself to prioritize strictly and then allocating the time to make sure it's in alignment. And then you get a lot better output. Interesting. Um, good deal. Well, uh, anything I didn't hit? Oh yeah. We could talk forever. Yeah, I know. This is fun. Uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. This, uh, yeah, I, a lot of, a lot of good stuff that I, uh, that I hadn't heard yet. So, um, yeah, really appreciate you doing this and I'm excited for this. This week, I don't know what percentage is going to be boondoggle uh, lessons. I mean, it's nice to actually have the first real, I think this is the first like kind of in-person event that sort of happened in a way pre-COVID. It feels like well, people are Well, not that people through. live here. Like we've had Basel, you know, yeah, which is sure. epic, ultra, sure. if you yeah. like into music. So Tech Week's a pretty substantial operation. F1 will be a substantial operation. I'm excited because I think 
unlike many conferences in many environments where people go for conferences, Delhi and I think we can get between 10 and 20% of the people who come here to, to move. Yeah. So that's my real goal is prove that Miami is the center of gravity and technology and then move people here that reinforces that. Well, thanks for doing this. Pleasure. All right. That concludes the 13th episode of Three Cartoon Avatars. I have a uh, Miami dinner party to get to. So uh, yeah, we, we only could make it whatever, uh, however long this is, a couple hours. Definitely our longest one to date. Nikita, given this is the last time that you can foreseeably tease the app before it actually exists, should we do, we do one last attempt at you telling us what you're working on? Yeah, the name of the app is 